0: Father, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. We thank you for the opportunity to come to church, to be able to spend time with fellow believers in fellowship, to be able to encourage each other, to pray for each other, and also, Lord, to learn about you. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the legitimacy of your word, the fact that we can count on it, that it's all profitable for every sort of teaching, and that it touches on every part of our lives I ask that you be with us today as we're going into several different studies between the rapture and revelation and I ask that you empower us to a higher level of discernment as we're trying to truly understand what your word says. I pray for this in Jesus name. Amen. I'm pretty happy because we have finished the excursus on imminence. And by that I mean we'll we'll keep talking about it but we're not It's not our main focal point at this point in the study. So we are studying, just as a way of reminder, the rapture of the church. Now, in order to really talk about the rapture of the church, I'm going to kind of monologue for a second about that. Um, We really needed to talk about when the rapture takes place because it doesn't really matter what belief system you are unless you're off on one of the far corners of the spectrum, you're going to believe in a rapture of some sort. You're either going to believe it happens before the tribulational period at any moment, Uh, at the beginning of the trib. You're going to believe it happens in the middle of the trib, three quarters of the way through the trib, at the end of the trib. You're, You're going to believe it happens at some point in reference to the tribulational period. We believe it happens before the tribulation and that it could happen at any moment. What we did is we spent many weeks going through the entirety of the New Testament to look at what the New Testament has to say about the coming of the Lord. We looked at the focuses, the fact that the New Testament writers always related it to godly living, which, again, speaks more towards its relevance as a teaching more than anything else. But we also got this idea that we can actually expect to not be in the tribulational period. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, chapter 5, Revelation chapter 3. We see it implicitly in other places, too. But the biggest thing is that we are looking towards the coming of the Lord, not towards the Antichrist. So having looked at what the New Testament said about that subject, we then went around and looked at the arguments against that position because you're, you're truly living in a vacuum if you don't know or aren't equipped to be able to interact with the opposing arguments on a viewpoint. So we went into what I think were the best arguments, the nine best arguments, we'll call it that, against our position. And we went into, I would consider it to be a lot of detail, explaining exactly kind of the nuances of each one of those positions. So at this point in the study, I want to take a quick break and take a second look at John chapter 14. Because as I'm studying post tribulationalism and all of these other viewpoints, I'm finding that John 14 tends to be one of the biggest sticking points for post tribulationalism in particular. Now, let's look at John 14 and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that before we get into detail. So it says in John 14, and I have it on the screen so you don't have to turn there if you don't want to it says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus talking to his disciples in the Upper Room Discourse. Um, Judas has left the room. This is Jesus talking to what is going to be the foundation of the church that is to come. The church is in embryo. This is a church that is on the way to being born at Pentecost. Jesus is front-loading them with a lot of information that they won't even understand until they're given the Holy Spirit. So this is kind of the general overlaying context of John chapter fourteen. He says, um, "Believe also in me, and my Father's house are many rooms." Okay, where's the Father's house? Heaven. Okay, if that were not so, I would have told you, because I am going there to prepare a place for you. Okay, he's going to the Father's house. Now this seems this seems very Okay, over um, like, like an over-analysis of the obvious, but what were, you are going to find is that in post-tribulationalism, which is where I believe we're going to start on hopefully next week, um, this is something they, they either gloss over or they ignore when they're trying to present John 14 and what it's actually teaching. So I'm being very specific, and we'll do this again next time. Because remember, he's talking about the Father's house, which is in heaven. And what what is he saying in relation to that? He says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you will be also. Or I'm sorry, there you will be. And you know the way where I am going. So that's the general promise of John 14 verses 1 through 4. Is that he's going to the Father's house. And again, there's that if clause. If he's going to the Father's house, he's promising also to do what? To come to prepare a place for us there and then to come back. But notice it doesn't say come back to the earth. He says to receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, what we're going to find is that people like Douglas Moo, who's a a professor um, at the Institute for Biblical Research, and people like Robert Gundry. These are the two main uh, theologians that people on the post-trib side of things will go to as a reference point to push their position. So I'm trying to go to who the, again, who the internet says are the best representations of this viewpoint to try to figure out what they actually believe. And what they will say is that It's saying that we're going to be taken to Jesus when he says, I'm going to take you to myself. So what they're suggesting is that he's going to appear in the clouds. We get taken to him and then we escort him back to earth for Armageddon. So again, that would be fine. That would make sense in the fact that we're getting taken to Jesus, but it ignores the fact of everything that just preceded it in this little statement, because what was he doing? He was creating Dwelling places for us in the Father's house. What are they ignoring? The dwelling places that he created for us that he is then promising to do what? To take us to. Again, we're going to be going into a lot more detail about that, but I I think it's really important to talk not just about John 14, but a lot of the analogies in the New Testament pertaining to uh, the relationship between Jesus and the church. So that's what we're going to take uh, kind of a break-on in terms of our study, just to look at that today. I think it's going to be beneficial. So I'm going to turn, and we'll, we'll keep this on the screen for a second. I'm going to turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4, because I think it's really important for us to read that particular verse as it directly parallels with John 14. And we'll be going into that in a second. It says, starting in verse 13... And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. These are very similar descriptions of what I would consider to be the exact same event. If you look on the screen, I have the exact, what I would consider to be the exact parallels between the two verses. And if you look at it in this form, it is absolutely shocking how similar they are. I mean, you're talking about trouble. You're talking about believing God. Uh, like it's it's kind of unnerving how close they are. And there are a lot of people that would actually claim that they have nothing to do with each other, especially people who, um, what we'll call in the last the first half of the last century, who believed John 14 was talking about Jesus coming and. Uh, whenever a person dies, taking them to the Father's house. That's, you'll, you'll actually hear it if you go to um, some funerals. They'll actually quote John 14, verses 1 through 3, which is a nice comforting verse. Um, I think they would be better suited quoting 1 Thessalonians 4, specifically because it's relating to those who have fallen asleep. It's relating to those Christians who have already died. Or 1 Corinthians 15, talking about how they're going to get resurrected bodies. I mean, you could, you could make a lot of arguments for that. But the point that I'm trying to make is, first of all, we're, we're talking about basically the same event. That's a point that we're going to be going back to a little bit later today as well. Um, one of the things, and a lot of you guys in this room probably already know this. I just thought it would be useful to put it on the screen just to kind of make a good example of it. But there are shocking similarities between a Jewish wedding ceremony and the rapture of the church. And I see a lot of you are nodding. A lot of you knew that. We're going to go into a little bit of detail on this. And what you'll notice is we spent quite a bit of time talking about John 14. I've been kind of wanting to do this this entire study. Um, but we've already spent time on John 14. We've already made our arguments for the rapture. We've already made our arguments for when the rapture takes place. So I'm, not, I'm going to make what I would consider to be a comparison Between those two ideas, doing a traditional Jewish wedding ceremony in the first century and the rapture of the church, um, but this is more for fun, okay? There's nothing inspired about a Jewish ceremony, but what you'll notice is, think about the word kingdom. When Jesus talks about the kingdom in the book of Matthew, he never explains what the kingdom is, because everybody would have already known it. Everybody already would have had a good idea of what the kingdom was based upon biblical prophecy in the Old Testament not just the Old Testament, not just um, not even just prophecy in general, but because of the structure of the kingdom program God had since Adam. Now, that being said, when Jesus talks about a wedding to Jewish people and he makes analogies to the bride of Christ, to this relationship, these would have been things they would have known too. So it's really easy to gloss over the idea of a wife. Oh yeah, Jesus is the, the groom of the church. We're the bride. It's such a nice idea. But It has more to it than just a nice idea because it would have been something the apostles would have been very intimately familiar with in the first century. So I want to look at a few different parts of the wedding ceremony and just just see, we'll just spitball, we'll throw darts at a dartboard, see what happens, see how close it ends up being. So the first part of a Jewish wedding is the selection of the bride. So I'm just going to read this. In ancient times, the Hebrew father of the groom would choose the son's bride. Well, that's interesting. The son would honor his father's choice and the arrangement plans would begin. Did that ever happen? Well, let's go to John chapter 15. Let's, let's see what that says. We're going to do a lot of flipping through the Bible, which mainly because this is just kind of cool when you think about it. Um, Because if you were to take a literal interpretation of the New Testament as it pertains to the rapture, this would be Incredibly obvious. Now, there are other people. The mid trip group would actually also bring up this comparison, um, as would the pre-rapturist group, but I still think it's kind of important. In John 15, verse 16, it says that you did not choose me, but I chose you, and, the, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. The second part of the wedding is this idea of an agreement, or the ketubah, this idea that the wedding agreement was called uh, a ketubah, which I'm not even pretending to pronounce correctly. After the terms of this were accepted, a cup of wine was shared to seal the marriage covenant. From that time forth, the couple was considered to be married, even though the marriage was not consummated yet. The bride resided with her family until the time of the wedding. One especially interesting part of this, actually, um, was that the groom committed to complete provision for the bride from that time forth as the couple began their covenant relationship on the basis of that agree- covenant agreement that they made by drinking from that cup. So did Jesus do anything like that? Or are we just trying to throw something into the text? Well, if you actually look, if we go back to the book of Matthew in chapter 26... And we're, we're going to hop, hop around a little bit on this one, too. It says in chapter 26 and verse 27, it says, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. This is really important. We'll get to it later. From now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Um, What we're going to look at later is that this wedding ceremony actually had two instances of drinking of a cup. There was the one that officiated the idea of this marital ceremony, which signified that they were married. And then there was a second one they did after the consummation of the marriage that we're going to look at later, which was at the wedding supper. Uh, Moving forward, we'll go to Luke chapter 22. So in Luke chapter 22, in verse 20, it says, And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant my blood. So again, just giving and emphasizing this idea. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we should all be intimately familiar with, we talk about it at least once a month, um, So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I say that, but I I can't quote it. (laughs) So chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, it says, In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so what is it doing? It's creating a reminder of us about the coming of the Lord. And it's reminding us of what he did for us. And so it's really standing in the gap. What we're going to find out is that in a Jewish wedding ceremony, it did the same thing. Because once you drank that cup, you were committing to marrying a person. He was committing to taking care of you if you were the bride. And what's more is that you were essentially married. And so now you're in what would be considered by a lot of people to be a testing phase. Are you going to stay pure in this time period between when you got married, when you drank the cup, and when you consummated the marriage and moved in with your new husband? So that's kind of the question that gets asked there. That being said, the next point was this idea of commitment or bridal consent to be married because the bride did have a choice. <laughs> okay, Now, the bride did have the choice of refusal. If she disagreed with what was being presented to her, she could refuse the wine cup and the deal was off. If she drank from that cup of wine, the covenant was sealed. The only way out of it after this for either of them would be death or divorce. The engagement made to them as a legal marriage without sexual union. So that's kind of the idea that uh, pertained to this marriage that they had. And I think that's really telling because, um, yeah, it makes it perfectly clear why we ought to stay pure while we're waiting for the Lord. Again, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. The next point is this idea of the bride price, which should make your ears ring a little bit. It was considered that the husband and his family were gaining an asset and the bride's family were losing one, which makes sense. Um, so that that being said, the price was according to the wealth of the groom's father. The choice of whom the bride would be and the bride price, or the mohar, as it was called, was to reflect the father of the groom's honor, integrity, and stature. His future generations were at stake, even if the bride's family was not wealthy. It was the groom's father... Um, if the groom's father was, the price would reflect his, his wealth, essentially. It's kind of how it would work. Now, that being said, we're still in 1 Corinthians, so let's go back to chapter 6. It says in chapter 6, starting in verse, uh, verse 19, it says, "Or Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? That's interesting. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. If we move over to 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll see this point somewhat emphasized again. It says in chapter 1, verses 18, uh, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold in your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. Because what happened when when Jesus died? What, What did that do? Did that ratify the new covenant? Did that seal us in his blood? I think it did. The next portion was that while betrothed preparations for the future, the groom then began to build a new home, usually on family property. It's actually usually attached to his father's house which is uh, how they would normally do it. He would just build off of that house. Why would he do that? Well, because the father traditionally, if they were wealthy, they would have land that they would be working because they were an agricultural society. So what he would do is he would build off of his father's house for his bride. Now, it was important that this new home would meet the honor of the father's stature as it would be the home used in the continuation of his family. Neither bride nor groom knew when the father would say it was good enough So they both needed to be ready. So the father ultimately determined when the time was, when the, again, it's just kind of cool. So uh, did Jesus promise to do anything like that in the New Testament? I can't remember. Were we reading something about that earlier today? I felt like we were. So, oh yeah, it opened right to the page. In John 14 verses two through three, Jesus says, "'In my father's house are many dwelling places.'" If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Again, I'm not bringing this up as an argument to prove the point of the pre-tribulational rapture. I'm not doing this to prove anything. I'm just, we're building the case. Again, we've already made the case and sealed the case on the basis of Scripture alone. This is just kind of fun, because it just reminds us that Uh, Jesus didn't say arbitrary things in the first century in a vacuum that the disciples couldn't understand. He spoke specifically to their culture, the relevance of that culture. The next portion of this entire ceremony was known as the mikvah. Um, Yeah, I pronounced that correctly. When they felt that they were getting close, when the bride felt that the husband was getting ready to go out and gather her for the marital ceremony— The bride would actually go through the ritual of immersion called the mikvah. And it signified the passing of the old and the forthcoming of the new. The person had to be strictly clean and completely immersed. And mikvah is the same word that we see in the New Testament as baptism. Um, So moving a little bit back to the book of Matthew, we're just going to read the first verse in uh, Matthew 28, 19 just right at the very tail end of Matthew. It says in 28 verse, we'll start at 16, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain, which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's move to 1 Corinthians 15, which we have also spent quite a bit of time on in the past, um, outside of the study and within the study as well. So it says, starting in verse 50, it says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, Again, it's really easy to go past that, this idea of inheritance, this idea of inheriting the imperishable, that which will last forever. He's saying that our uh, heavenly body, or our earthly bodies aren't fit for a heavenly reality. So we're going to see how that fits in in a second. He says, "'Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed.'" in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality and we'll see really how that factors in in a second but the biggest thing is that we're eventually going to be changed before we go to the father's house again We'll see that in a second. The next portion is this idea of the call for the wedding. When the father decided that all was in order, he would actually have his servants start putting together the things needed. And he would have the shofars blown and send the word out that the wedding was about to happen. It was customary for one of the groom's party to go ahead of the bridegroom, leading the way to the bride's house and shout, Behold, the bridegroom comes. And the father would say to his son, Go get the bride. And this would usually happen at night. When the bride got the word, she would run to meet the groom, and together they would head for the ceremony. Wow, that sounds a lot like something we read earlier in First, uh, what was it? First Thessalonians chapter four, if we're remembering correctly. Oh, I had it on the screen. That's cheating. So again, what what do we get here? We get a shout with the voice of an archangel. We have the trumpet sounding, which would be the shofar in the case of the Jews. So it's just, again, it's just so eerie how exactly, I would say, synonymous these examples are with the expectations we have for the rapture. Uh, next portion, this was known as the huppah and there would be a short ceremony, and then the bride and groom retired to the place he had prepared for her. And the friend of the groom, the best man, stood by the door. And when the marriage had been consummated, the groom would shout in his joy. And the, I'm sorry, the groom would relay the good news to the guests. And this was the beginning of a week-long, interesting celebration. And the first week, the couple being alone together in the bridal chamber. Now, other people describe this a little bit differently. But the biggest thing is that they were, once the marriage had been consummated, they essentially just got to be with each other for a week. They got to be alone in this new house for a week. That was part of the wedding ceremony, and then once they emerged from there, they were considered to be a new couple. They were considered to be their own family unit that were coming out into the world. Um, I think it's strikingly interesting that this happened for a week. Again, I'm—I just think it's interesting. Okay, I'm not reading into it. I just think it's a week is a very specific amount of time. So we'll we'll go to the book of uh, the Gospel of John, chapter three as we look for a little bit of support there. It says in chapter 3, starting in verse 29, it says that he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. It says, again, in John 14, we get this idea of the husband, the groom, going to take the bride to the place he had prepared for her in, in where? In the father's house. Um, the next portion is that part I was talking about at the beginning, which is known as the second drink from the cup, which is this idea of the simca. And the second cup of wine was shared during the marriage ceremony with the bride, drinking after the groom. Thus, the ketubah has been completed, the first cup of wine having been drank at the acceptance of the ketubah. Basically, this is this idea of a second, um, the second time they drink from that cup because that first ketubah had two different phases to it. There was the initial phase where they drank initially to make the wedding ceremony uh, officiated, essentially, and the second time is done at a later date, signifying that all that other stuff that happened since the Ketaba had been completed. Again, that's just how they used to do it. And so if we go to Matthew, again, towards the tail end of Matthew, uh, chapter 26, it says in verse 29. Uh, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Again, the similarities are a little bit on the shocking side. And then we actually see this idea of the marriage supper. This was the last phase of this uh, particular ceremony. And following the cer- ceremonial proceedings of the hoopa, in the marriage banquet, also sometimes called the wedding feast or the marriage festival, there was the joyful celebration of the union of the couple with all of their family and friends. When would we have a reunion with all of our family and friends? Well, that's one of the biggest characteristics of the rapture, is that we're having a reunion with every member of the church who has ever existed at one specific moment moment in time in history at the coming of the rapture. Every person who is dead, every person who is alive who still remains, all goes together to be with the Lord. And what's more is that we'll be in heaven with them. We'll, we'll be able to converse with them. This is, these are going to be real people that we're going to be a part of because we're part of the body of Christ, which is uh, not limited to just the people that were in this room with, okay? It's every single person who's ever been in the body of Christ, in the universal church from the moment of its inception to the moment of the rapture. Um, Because again, we look at the Acts chapter 2 and the rapture as the bookends of the church, as it pertains to the church age. It says in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 7, going all the way to verse 9, it says, Then let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Now, if you go forward, the marriage supper of the Lamb ends up being an. Uh, not going to be super fun if you look at what ends up happening you see that going a little bit farther down the chapter but the point still remains which is that as we're looking at these analogies throughout the new testament as we're looking in the book of ephesians looking at the bride of christ analogy and other places um again we can either decide that it's just a really nice thing that he calls us his bride it probably means he'll never leave us or forsake us we can we can uh allegorize the idea of the bride away as much as we want to and come up with a nice conclusion that sounds good. But at the end of the day, anytime they use a term relating to the bride, anytime they make a, a term that has a specific meaning that the Jews would have understood, when we're trying to figure out our interpretation of what it means, we don't make up whatever we think it means. We try to figure out what did the author mean. In this case, it would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Um, when he wrote the words that he was writing. If those words were spoken by a Jew in the first century to another Jew, what would the other Jew have known he meant? Again, it's not about what we want the scripture to mean, it's about what it actually means. Now, notice, uh, I didn't whip this out and say there's a Jewish analogy and then that's why the rapture is pre-tribulational because we're going to be in the Father's house for a week obviously, like the ceremonial procedure is, which would keep them away from everybody in the marital chamber, right? I didn't make that analogy because I don't think that proves anything. I think the scriptural description of the rapture in John in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians in Revelation shows us that it's going to be pre-tribulational, that it's going to have all of these things. And we can make an argument from Scripture alone without having to get into any of this. I mean, there are a lot of Jewish ceremonial issues that, I mean, I'm not, we don't whip out the Mishnah every morning to figure out how we ought to do church or whether or not we should base what we believe off of that. We don't do any of those things, but when it comes down to it, when the Lord uses an analogy, when he speaks to his disciples to help them understand something, he usually does it in a way that they'll understand. Now, we're not the disciples, we're living in a different century. We need to really understand the historical context to be able to understand that. So, when I bring this out, I'm doing it specifically uh, as more like icing on the cake. The cake's already been made, cake is scripture alone in Christ alone, in scripture alone like everything that we believe, words of Christ, the epistolary literature that's where we determine church age truth. Um, but at the Once you summarize it, it is kind of shocking how exact these things are. Now, I was a little concerned the first time a few years ago when I heard this, so I actually went to a bunch of different sources because I was thinking, yeah, it would be really easy for a pre-tribulational teacher to be like, oh, I'll just fudge this a little bit to make it work with my theory. Again, um, I did find people that did that uh, who made this a lot more similar to a pre-tribulational rapture. Um, but there were a lot of people and these seem to be the general uh, guidelines of a Jewish wedding ceremony from the first century that people agreed on. So I went based off of that alone and I actually got it from a website. I'll have to look up which one I got these ones from because I like the way that they described them. But again, that's, I thought it was kind of cool. So I wanted to take a quick break from all the minutiae of trying to figure out Eminence and trying to go into the different belief systems to so just kind of look at that. Now, there are people that will say, well, post-tribulationalism can't be true because we have to go to the Father's house in a week for, because of this Jewish wedding ceremony. I've actually heard teachers say that. We're, we're not going to make that argument, although I think you could stretch it a little bit and make that argument valid, specifically because of the nature of how exact they are. And, and they are exactly that. So, again, when we talk about a pre-tribulational rapture, when I try to make an argument for that, um, first of all, I'm not going to make some sort of philosophical argument about why we have to be uh, raptured before the tribulational period. I'm going to go to Scripture. What does Scripture not say in any description of the rapture, in any description of our hope for the coming of the Lord? What does it not have? It doesn't include any specific signs that they're having us look out for, which would precede the coming of the Lord for his church. Um, again, whether you whatever viewpoint you have, you believe he is coming for his church. The question is whether his church is going to be on the earth in the church age or whether they're going to be in the throes of the tribulational period. As post-tribulational period, post-tribulationalists would assert being protected, apparently, which we're going to be getting into Later. Um, why else do we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? We believe in that because of the promises, the specific and I say that very sincerely, specific promises that we will not go through not just the tribulational period, but the hour, the time of the testing which is to come upon the whole world. That's a promise. So if we know we're not going to be part of that, then why would we put ourselves in that when we're warning the people in our church if we've already been told not to do that? Next, the understanding that the church has been told to wait for the coming of the Lord, not the Antichrist and his kingdom. Where does it say that in the New Testament? If only we had a slide where we could look at and and see that information. Um, In any case... That's just kind of the basis for this idea of believing in a pre-tribulational rapture. It's it's not something that we've made up. It's not something we want to happen, although I desperately do want it to happen because it's an incredible promise the Lord has made to us. Um, We believe it because we see it in the New Testament. We see it taught in the New Testament. We see that it doesn't conflict with any of the other promises that the Lord has made us. So again, what we're going to find is that I'm not saying that there aren't questions that I would have or you might have on the pre-tribulational rapture or on the end times in general. I have questions and I think I'll die with questions. The question that we ought to be asking is of all these different viewpoints, which I, I hate to word it this way, which has the most problems, which has the most conflictions of information? Because what you'll find, especially in relation to John chapter 14, which we're going to spend a lot of time on when we look at post-tribulationalism, because it always seems to go back to that verse, um, or they always seem to ignore that verse, uh, whichever the case may be, um, we're going to be spending a lot of time on that. And so when we're looking at all of these things, we just kind of have to keep in mind that we're basing our understanding off of which viewpoint answers the most of those questions, whichever viewpoint fills the majority of those holes in in the construct that we believe is the end times. I believe that's pre-tribulationalism, and I think it's a grand slam. I think it's so easy for us to do. And we're going to go into detail about why that's the case when we get into the alternative perspectives as we move forward starting next week. We're going to be starting with the idea of the post-tribulation rapture, which is this idea that we're going to be raptured at the post-trib, at the end of the tribulational period. Um, it's going to be a part of the second coming. Now, they have their arguments. They have their points for this. Um, Guess what we get to do? We get to skip over most of the ones that deal with imminence because we've already talked about them. But how it pertains to how they make their arguments, again, we're going to summarize what we went through in Matthew chapter 24, which they go to quite a bit, Um, different places in John, 1 Thessalonians, And we're going to really analyze their position and how they come up to their conclusions and then make a judgment call about whether or not we think those are true. So that's where we're going to start next week. I just kind of wanted to take a a break and do something a little bit lighter. Um, And I'm glad we did. So we will plan next week to start this idea of the post-tribulational rapture. More, More of an analysis is what we're shooting for than anything else. And then we'll... We'll do that terrible thing the Bible tells us not to do, and we'll judge them a little bit uh, for their viewpoint. Kidding. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to analyze what they're saying. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I think that's where we're going to end today. Father, we thank you so much for your promises, the promise that we're not going to go through the time of testing that's about to come upon the whole world, the fact that we have promises of future certain redemption, glorified bodies being raised together with you, and becoming one with the church, the entirety of the Bride of Christ, these are promises that you've made us. These are the promises that hold Christians through persecution, knowing that that is a certain reality. These are promises that we can look to in our hopes, and these are things that we, we thank you for because they help us to trust you all the more in the moment-by-moment moment struggle we have in the persecution and the trials that we go into in this life, of which we are all privy to. Lord, I ask that you be with us in the service to come, that you strengthen us, that you help those of us who are, who are both struggling in pain. Um, there are a lot of us, Lord, and so we're grateful for your support, and those of us that are struggling with different problems in our lives, problems in our marriages, whatever the case may be, Lord, you know, you understand our problems, and you promise that, that you actually intercede for us with groanings too deep for words, and that's something that you do in our place, and we're grateful, Lord. I ask that you help us, that you uh, minister to us as we're trying to learn more about you. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.